WBUR Podcasts, Boston. You're listening to Short Run, WBUR's home for special, limited, long-form, and narrative audio series from across Boston's NPR station. If you want more from the show you're hearing, jump over to that show's feed and hit subscribe or follow. Thanks for listening. What's going on? Those are Miniman missiles. Like a test, sort of. Like a warning? They're on their way to Russia. They take about 30 minutes to reach their target. So do theirs, right? On November 20th, 1983, ABC broadcast a primetime made-for-TV movie. It was called The Day After. Missile warning, this is me. All confidence is high. I repeat, confidence is high. Roger, we've got 32 targets in track and 10 impacting points. I want to confirm, is this an exercise? Roger, copy. This is not an exercise. Roger, understand. Major Reinhardt, we have a massive attack against the U.S. net at this time. ICBMs, numerous ICBMs. Over 300 missiles inbound now. More than 100 million Americans watched it that night. Two-thirds of the total viewing audience in 1983 scared out of their socks by imagined scenes of U.S.-Soviet nuclear Armageddon blazing on their TVs. Grotesque mushroom clouds bloomed on screens across the country. Lo-fi 80s special effects of irradiated human skeletons flash by. They're cut together with real scenes of buildings being instantly incinerated and obliterated by actual U.S. atomic weapons tests from the 40s and 50s. Actor Jason Robards, playing a Kansas doctor, scrambles for his life. He's near death by the end. Almost everyone is. Dr. Oakes, we have to contend with the number of bodies, the time required for each individual burial. Dr. Oakes. The danger of infection now is so grave, the only solution is to prepare for public graves on the outside of town. Dr. Oakes. The day after was a major television event. While it did not change history, it was a perfectly timed cultural indicator whose massive audience included one man, privileged enough to get a sneak preview of the film more than a month before it was broadcast. On Monday, October 10th, 1983, President Ronald Reagan wrote in his diary, quote, in the morning at Camp David, I ran the tape of the movie ABC is running, called The Day After. It's very effective and left me greatly depressed, end quote. On November 18th, two days before the film hit network TV, Reagan wrote about receiving a military briefing in the Situation Room regarding the U.S. military's plan in the event of a real nuclear attack. Quote, it was a scenario for a sequence of events that could lead to the end of civilization, Reagan wrote in his diary. The sequence of events in the briefing paralleled those in the ABC movie. Yet there were still some people at the Pentagon who claimed a nuclear war was winnable, end quote. 
Not that Reagan was working to mothball America's entire nuclear arsenal. This, after all, was the president who brought about one of the most dramatic military buildups in U.S. history. And above all, he was a canny politician. In that same November 18th diary entry, Reagan also wrote that Secretary of State George Shultz would go on ABC with Ted Koppel right after the movie's broadcast. Quote, We know it's anti-nuke propaganda, Reagan wrote, but we're going to take it over and say it shows why we must keep on doing what we're doing. End quote. Which is exactly what Shultz did. The only reason that we have nuclear weapons, as President Reagan said, is to see to it that they aren't used. We have to provide a balance so that others who have nuclear weapons, particularly the Soviet Union, realize that what could happen to us could happen to them and would happen to them. However, Reagan and his counterpart, then-Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev, were also about to enter a series of closed-door meetings to discuss nuclear arms control. So in January of 1984, a couple of months after The Day After aired, Reagan called Russian historian Suzanne Massey to the White House. The president, who'd openly referred to the Soviets as the evil empire, had also read Massey's book, Land of the Firebird, The Beauty of Old Russia, and Reagan wanted to know more. Suzanne Massey ended up advising the president for more than four years. And in 2014, Massey told the public radio program The World about one particularly fateful 1986 meeting that took place just before Reagan was to meet Gorbachev for a critically important arms control summit in Iceland. I was having lunch with uh, President Reagan and Mrs. Reagan. I said, "Uh, Mr. President, you know, the Russians often like to talk in proverbs. And there's one that might be useful. And I said, you're an actor. You can learn it in a minute. So I said, it's trust but verify. Well, he leapt on it. And so did Mrs. Reagan. And then he made it his. Trust but verify. In December 1987, Reagan made the phrase public and instantly iconic when he and Gorbachev signed the historic Intermediate Range Nuclear Weapons Treaty. The importance of this treaty transcends numbers. We have listened to the wisdom in an old Russian maxim. Though my pronunciation may give you difficulty, the maxim is dovayai no provayai. Trust but verify. You repeat that at every meeting. (laughs) I like it. You can't quite hear it, but at the end there, Reagan goes a bit off mic as he turns and smiles at Gorbachev and says, I like it. And so did Americans. Because from that moment forward, trust but verify, originally a Russian maxim, became the modern American aphorism for the importance of skepticism. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today it's episode four of our special series, Essential Trust. What trust is, why we need it, and what happens when it's lost. Now, trust but verify is a politically palatable version of skepticism, but skepticism's purest definition is to doubt the truth of something 
or philosophically, to even believe that certain forms of knowledge are impossible. So what would you say if we argued that healthy skepticism is an important, if unexpected, necessary counterpart to trust? We're going to turn that question now to Sandy Goldberg. He's a professor of philosophy at Northwestern University, joins us from Chicago. Professor Goldberg, welcome to On Point. Hello, Megna. It's great to be with you today. Thanks for having me. And also with us is Jack Beatty, On Point's news analyst with us from Hanover, New Hampshire. Hello there, Jack. Hello, Megna. So are you still trusting but verifying, Jack? <laughs> I'm I'm taking aboard that uh, that that Russian pronunciation. Um, president sounded convincing. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit more uh, about that moment in history, because when you and I had been discussing uh, this hour, Jack, that trust but verify phrase immediately jumped to my mind as like the perfect example of how skepticism comes into play say, in global politics. Yeah, I, I mean, people, historians think that uh, Reagan loved the phrase because it was a reassurance to his uh, to his right wing that, uh, yes, we would enter into an arms control agreement about arms, arm, nuclear arms in Europe, but we would be very careful to verify it. And uh, the uh, even in the 1988 campaign, uh, I think Jack Kemp and other candidates uh, were against this treaty because they didn't think the verification regime was severe enough. So Reagan was making a very deft uh, domestic political move there. Well, so Professor Goldberg, let me turn to you. Is this not a good example of how um, a certain... Uh, caution against gullibility is one of the reasons why skepticism is a is a important counterpart to trust. I, I think it's a fabulous example. It's it's really lovely in many ways. Uh, one might doubt whether Reagan really was trusting, um, but the, the phrase itself is a lovely one. And it's it's a good example of how we can try to combine attitudes of trust with attitudes of skepticism, and, and they, they do indeed go together. Mm. So then how would you define um, skepticism, first of all, in these broad, let's call it po- political terms, and then we'll get back, de- we'll get down to the individual level. Well, skepticism as it's used in ordinary everyday speech, I would describe as an attitude where you're not really easily convinced by anything. You refrain from judging. You have high standards of judgment. That's uh, typically what we mean when we talk about somebody is is, uh, is skeptical, that we mean that something about their personality. In philosophy, it's slightly different. Skepticism actually is, um, if not a school of thought, it's certainly a, a doctrine that many people have endorsed or have tried to argue against. And that's where issues of doubt come in and issues of the impossibility of knowledge come in. Okay, so tell me a little bit more because I did mention uh, that uh, that radical philosophical strain a little bit earlier. Right. So it goes back, at least in the Western philosophical tradition, it goes back at least to the ancient Greeks, uh, probably um, even before Socrates and Plato. But the really best early example we have of this is Socrates and Plato, where Socrates um, is told by the oracle at Delphi that he is the wisest person alive. And he himself was very, if you like, doubtful that that was true. Uh, and so he committed to trying to examine all of his uh, beliefs and all of the beliefs of his fellows in order to determine whether, in fact, the uh, the oracle statement was true. 
This gave rise to the idea, at least in the Western philosophical tradition, that we have something like an intellectual obligation to examine our beliefs. And those who examine our beliefs and find them wanting actually uh, are those that, that we, we would describe in philosophy as, as skeptics. And those who think that perhaps not only are the actual beliefs that we have now wanting, but any beliefs we could possibly have will not meet with, our, with appropriate standards. Those would be the real skeptics of the day. Huh. Well, today it's episode four of our special series, Essential Trust. And we're talking about, we're exploring why skepticism is a necessary counterpart to trust. We'll have more in a moment. This is On Point. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me on point for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future, five special episodes. Listen and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today it's episode four of our special series, Essential Trust, What Trust Is, Why We Need It, and What Happens When It's Lost. And we're talking today, we're exploring the idea uh, of skepticism and why it may be an essential counterpart to trust. I'm joined by Jack Beatty. He's On Point's news analyst. And Sandy Goldberg is with us as well. He's a professor of philosophy at Northwestern University. And Professor Goldberg, first of all, let me let me just ask, um, can trust and skepticism um, Oh, adequately, you know, coexist you know, within the within the same person. Are are they not uh, actually oppositional forces? So it's a it's a good question, um, and I would say whatever I'm going to say on this, there is philosophical dispute about virtually everything I'm, I will say. <laughs> Though I I think it's fair to say, at least I would say that um, they can exist in the same person. And uh, they may not exist at the same time in the same person, but it turns out that skepticism has a role to play in individual minds in the same way that it has a role to play in communities. And my thought is that uh, you need skepticism in order to have a healthy kind of trust, whether in the individual mind or even at the social level. Right. Okay. So, Jack, I really appreciate that Professor Goldberg mentioned the word healthy kind of trust, right? Because I would say that a completely blind trust that doesn't require any sort of uh, proof or verification, if I can put it that way, um, essentially is is gullibility. And that can be really uh, a, a negative force in an individual's life and in, in, in the life of a nation, can't it? It certainly can. Freud writes, a group is extraordinarily credulous and open to influence. It has no critical faculties and the improbable does not exist for it. We're living in a time where the improbable does not exist for millions of Americans who are in a trance of trust, a pathology of trust, believing Donald Trump's big lie. It turns out that the philosopher of our moment is Groucho Marx. In Duck Soup, he says, who are you going to believe, me or your eyes? 
Millions of Americans don't believe their eyes. The improbable does not exist for them. They have uh, forgotten about the verify part of, uh, of, 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 of trust but verify, and they are just in perhaps the most frightening phenomenon in the whole of American history, they believe this big lie. Mm. So, Professor Goldberg, this is why I'm, I'm, I want to plumb the depths of the tension between skepticism and trust more, because, you know, in, in Jack's example, the very uh, folks he's talking about would say, well, we are we are the paragons of skepticism, right? Because we're we're looking for, uh, you know, for a certain kind of proof. We're keeping our minds open that there might have been a different outcome to the election despite the proof already given. Yeah, I think that's right. One of the scary things for me about this present moment is that uh, exactly as you say, Magna, some of these movements, QAnon as well, I think one of their um, catchphrases is think for yourself. And what I often point out to students is thinking for yourself is a great thing when it's done well. And when it's not done well, it can lead to great problems. And I think that the kinds of things that Jack is talking about are, are the problems that we're seeing at the uh, within American politics today. OK, but, but tell me more about that, because um, it seems to me that one of the things about the the trust skepticism dynamic here is that um, as we rise in the scale of uh, what we are trusting in, it, it becomes more risky, right? Like I, I might trust a cashier to give me the proper change, but am I going to trust, um, you know, a, a drunk driver to drive appropriately or am I going to trust a, a, an institution that's not transparent uh, to behave as it says it will. So skepti- the need for skepticism rises as um, as the risk that we undertake in trusting also rises, does it not? I, I think that's right. Uh, what you put your finger on very nicely is the need to invest our trust wisely. We need to uh, trust those who are trustworthy and we need to distrust those who are not trustworthy. And it turns out to be a non-trivial task to figure out who who is, is goes in which bucket. And that's part of what uh, the, the area of philosophy that I um, that I tend to focus on, epistemology or the theory of knowledge, this is one of the, the things that it focuses on, how to discern what, what is true and trustworthy from what is merely apparently true but actually false. And so how do you do that? <laughs> Great question. The simple answer is you you get a lot of education. Um, but education is um, is a great stopgap. It's the kind of thing that puts us in the best position to discern the truth from the false. But I have to say there is no surefire way that will guarantee you in every single case where you're trying to make a judgment that your judgment is true. And that's I, unfortunately, that's just part of the human condition, and that's one of the reasons why these these questions can be so vexing. Okay, so Jack, Jack, respond to that, and and again in uh, in the context of the the concerns of the the gullibility, the credulousness, um, large scale credulousness that you talked about earlier. Well, you know, St. Matthew has this line, walk according to the best light ye have, but be sure your light be not darkness. That's the critical thing. Uh, is, you know, the ability to reflect on your own views and to, to say, well, is this light or is this just a form of ignorance? And it's the suspension of that critical faculty that has gripped and large parts of, a, of the Republican Party and uh, people who, in their ordinary day, are skepticism, are skeptical about lots of matters, 
essentially put their brains on ice and suspend their minds and say and believe uh, uh, the most improbable, uh, uh, against all the evidence, the most improbable lies because Donald Trump has told them. And so uh, I think that that's uh, that that inability to re of, of critical thinking to reflect on the grounds of their knowledge. There are no grounds except for his assertion that would make it go away in, a, in an instant. But I think what we see is people are putting their identities over the truth. Oh, OK. I want to be me rather than I want to be right. OK, so Professor Goldberg would love to hear you respond to that. What do you think? I think a lot of what Jack is saying is true. I, I, I agree with it. Um, I, the one thing I would caution against is um, I'm not saying that, Jack, that, that you're guilty of this, but I would I would caution against a, a cartoonish understanding of the other side. And the reason I would caution against this has nothing to do with skepticism and trust. It has to do with how we are going to move our way forward as a community. My worry is if we if each side lampoons the other side, there's no way that we're going to get through this. Uh, that with that said, I, I agree entirely with what Jack said at the end. Namely, there the foundations that we think that we have um, often our foundations are very good. Often, if we reflect on them, we'll discern that they're very good. But it can turn out that even for uh, the the best right thinking thinker, um, sometimes. Um, he, she, or they will take themselves to be correct when they find out ultimately that they're not. That That is what I'm calling part of the human condition. It's true for all of us. Mm. But uh, just to, to be clear on something here, uh, I, I feel like what I'm hearing generally is, first of all, an, an, an excess of trust is dangerous. Uh, an excess of skepticism can also be dangerous because uh, then you tip over into just disbelief. But, but, but when we have a healthy balance, though, does, does skepticism serve as um, a, a kind of backstop to mitigate the risks that come with uh, placing our trust in others or placing our trust in, in institutions? I think the answer is absolutely yes. Uh, give you a little example. So um, imagine that you have a, a good friend and, and you clearly trust this friend. This friend is trustworthy. Uh, it's not as though when you trust your friend, you close your eyes to the possibility that uh, that they're going to do something that is not entirely trustworthy. It's not that you go out and look for uh, their examples of being untrustworthiness, but you're always alive to the possibility. Um, that's a kind of skepticism that's compatible with trust. And the reason that I think this kind of skepticism actually makes trust um, healthy is precisely that when I know that you trust me, uh, that le leads me to think that I need to live up to the kind of trust that you have in me. And I'm also aware that that if I fail to do so, you will pick up on that and I will I'll suffer accordingly. That's part of what it is that makes me as trustworthy as I am. And that's part of what it is that earns the earns me the right to have your trust. And if it weren't for that skepticism, I would have much less pressure on me to behave in the ways that you're relying on me to behave. And that's why I think skepticism actually is is a kind of backstop for trust, if you if you put it that way. Mm -hmm. OK, well, Professor Goldberg and Jack Beatty hang on here for just a second, because I want to turn the conversation now to why um, skepticism actually is a very rational form of protection, uh, um, you know, uh, amongst certain communities, uh, especially in this country. So I'd like to invite Julia Jordan Zachary into the conversation. <clears throat> Excuse me. She's chair of the Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies Department at Wake Forest University and president of the Association for Ethnic Studies, author of Shadow Bodies, Black Women, Ideology, 
representation in politics and the forthcoming Black Women and Dorona, Community, Consciousness, and Ethics of Care. Professor Jordan Zachary, welcome to On Point. Thank you. Thank you, Magna. It's a pleasure to be here with you all today. So first of all, just tell me how um, the discussion we've been having about uh, skepticism, what it is and its important has been and its importance, how has that been landing with you so far? So I will say that um, I'm intrigued by the conversation as it's moving in this beautiful way between the macro and the micro, society and the individual. And I, you know, I'm curious as to how we temper this kind of movement by looking a little deeper at identity, which was an issue that was brought up, suggesting that trust sometimes is influenced by identity. So it's been really intriguing for me to listen. Okay, so tell me more. So, you know, um, if we were to think about particular groups in the U.S. and how they've been treated, we have to, to look at how, for example, the institution of slavery, um, settler colonialism, et cetera, influences trust both in the past and how that resonates within particular communities, right? And so in part of my research uh, as a political scientist, I talk about Black women's hesitant hope which is this interesting combination of both trust and skepticism, right? And it's very um, grounded in data, but how do we understand data? Data is sometimes understood differently depending on the communities that we're talking about. Um, so that's, you know, that's what I would like for us to to kind of deepen a little bit about when we think about trust and skepticism. Mm -hmm. Well, so so let me let's be, um, you know, so even even more di direct about this, because this is exactly what I was hoping you, you would bring to the conversation. There are very, very clear reasons. You just listed a bunch of them. Why, um, you know, significant communities in this country might look uh, upon institutions uh, from a default position of skepticism, um, you know, racism being a, a major force in terms of how black Americans have been treated for centuries. So but you also bring up this idea of hesitant hope. Can you tell me tell me more about that? So hesitant hope, I go back to the work of Ida B. Wells Barnett, for example, when she charted and, and um, basically archived lynching in the United States. And um, there was a kind of hope that Ida B. Wells um, engaged in a kind of hesitant hope. And, and her hope was that by archiving this, the, 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 the history and the legacy of lynching, that the U.S. would somehow change from its ways. Okay. But she was also very well aware of the functioning of racism oh. and how that would temper the response of the U.S. political system. Huh. But then, but that's still um, the impetus for that change, though, still was uh, having to emerge from the communities that had been harmed, right? I mean, how, how do, I'm, I'm curious about how, um, if you think at all, that warranted skepticism has encouraged those institutions themselves to change. So are you asking me how skepticism could, for example, influence the U.S.'s um, political structure to change in response to? Yeah. I mean, um, yeah. I mean, that might be my own form of hesitant hope here, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, you know, turning to to the likes of Martin Luther King Jr., um, which I think is a really classic example of, of the, the, the blending of hope and, and, and skepticism. Right. 
And when we read the letter from Birmingham jail, which I think personally and as a political scientist is probably one of the most fundamental pieces written by Martin Luther King Jr., he shows us how he is hoping that skepticism will change the American political structure. And he's saying, you are asking me to wait. How long am I supposed to wait? And I'm paraphrasing, Mm -hmm. right? And so he's saying, what are you skeptical about when you are asking me to wait? So he's turning that skepticism back on these structures and asking them to interrogate data looking at the individual, but also the individual is part of a collective, right? And so what what I think, and of course I can't speak for Martin Luther King Jr., but what I think he was doing was asking them to interrogate knowledge, which is what skepticism is supposed to allow us to do, to interrogate knowledge by looking at the data, by looking at facts. And so I think that's a really good example of that. Yeah. Okay. So interrogate knowledge and one's own presumed knowledge. So, so Professor Goldberg, I would love to hear you reflect on that because it seems to me that a true healthy skepticism um, would be one that is willing to be skeptical of, like, if I'm a true healthy skeptic, I should be skeptical of myself and, and what I presume to know as well. I think that's absolutely right. And what Professor Jordan Zachary said is extremely important. <clears throat> in the in the history of philosophical discussions of, of these matters, uh, there, there has been a tendency to assume that we are all in the same position with respect to the information that we have before us. And that turns out to be a uh, fiction and at times a dangerous fiction. And that's one of the points that Professor uh, Jordan Zachary is making. My my colleague, um, he's he's now he, – he tragically died last year. My colleague Charles Mills uh, used to write about this and, and he has a very, very influential book entitled The Racial Contract where he's, he basically makes clear to the philosophical tradition that unless we recognize that a lot of our theory has been constructed on the basis of certain presumptions – and certain privileges that that white folks have had over the years, we are not going to, to understand the, the full the full spectrum of challenges that we have as a political community. And I think that just underlines the, the, the point that Professor Jordan Zachary was making. And I also think Dr. King, uh, in that that beautiful letter, and I could not agree with with, uh, with you more, uh, uh, Professor Jordan Zachary, uh, I think it underscores the point that Dr. King was making in his letter as well. Hmm. Well, this is episode four of our special series, Essential Trust. What trust is, why we need it, and what happens when it's lost. And today, We're taking a look at what might seem to be the flip side of trust, skepticism, and why a healthy skepticism is necessary for building trust. And I'm joined today by Sandy Goldberg, Julia Jordan-Zachary, and Jack Beattie. We'll have more when we come back. This is On Point. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And by the way, next time it will be the final part of our special series, Essential Trust, what trust is, why we need it, and what happens when it's lost. And in the final part, we're going to be talking about how we as a society can rebuild trust in each other and in our institutions. So we want to hear from you. Have you lost trust in an institution, in an American institution, or with parts of your community, or even in a personal relationship. And have you been able to rebuild that trust? 
How did you do it? We'd love to get your stories, uh, and you can send them to us in high quality with the new On Point Vox Pop app. Now, if you don't have it on your phone already, just search for the On Point Vox Pop uh, in the App Store or in Google Play. It's easy to use. So again, look for the On Point Vox Pop app, or you can still give us a call. Our voicemail line is 617-353-0683. That's 617-353-0683. Today, we are talking about why skepticism may be an important part, healthy skepticism may be an important counterpart to trust. And I'm joined today by Sandy Goldberg. He's a professor of philosophy at Northwestern University. Julia Jordan-Zachary joins us. She's a she's the chair of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Wake Forest University. And Jack Beatty is with us as well. He's On Point's news analyst. And Jack, I wanted to give you a, a shot at uh, sharing your thoughts about what uh, Professor Jordan-Zachary uh, was saying just before the break. Well, that lovely phrase, hesitant hope, uh, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, commentators noticed uh, how reluctant, how uh, seemingly slow African Americans were to embrace the science around uh, vaccination and so on. Uh, and and the, there was a lag for a period of time in 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 people in people getting um, getting their shots. And of course, that was. That hesitancy was encoded by decades of experimentation on the black body by the medical establishment, and uh, and and it and it really was a case of the past holding hostage people who needed help but who just couldn't. They had to get to the hope part. They had to, the hesitancy was a barrier, and it was a barrier that was, you know, right in the DNA of their history. Mm. And so to basically get uh, folks to that hope part, again, I return to this idea that it's the responsibility of the institutions to prove that they're worthy of it. And, and I mean, on that point, it's something that's come up over and over again in conversations we've had with healthcare providers. So I want to give you an example. Um, A while ago, we spoke with Dr. Vindel Washington. He's the chief clinical officer of the Verily Health Platforms Group and CEO of Onduo. He's a black physician um, as well. And we had been talking to him about um, artificial intelligence and healthcare. And in that context, the question of the healthcare uh, in institutions of healthcare and it, their historic treatment of black Americans came up. And here is what Dr. Washington said. We've not really done much to close the gap in those communities. I would say that it's bias that exists within the system for sure on behalf of providers. But I also think there's often a lack of trust, particularly institutional trust in communities. And so even if you're trying to do the right thing, um, in many communities, the institutions have not built enough trust to carry the right to have the individual respond in the way that they're hoping. And there's no shortcut on the trust side. I mean, trust is really it's really based on a series of promises that have been kept. And so you can't erase some of the experiences that folks have had. Professor Jordan Zachary, respond to that. I totally agree. I remember as a little girl, my grandmother would always say, trust once broken is hard to um, redo. So hold it tenderly. And as the doctor alluded to, um, we trust when we can believe that the promises made 
actually result in policies, for example, actually result in actions. And so it's one of those things where the action and the words have to align. So you cannot claim, for example, it's a democratic system while systematically engaging in policies that take people away from their right to vote or take the the right to vote away from people. The two aren't aligned. And so there's this disconnect that happens. And so to foster trust in institutions, institutions have to deal with the kind of disembodiment that some communities experience when they systematically and over time have been denied what has been promised. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so then, um, maybe this is an impossible question to answer, but how do we know when... um, an institution has reached the point that it has kept enough promises so that uh, a, a community's skepticism can, um, can, can relax a bit. You will notice it in the actions of the individuals, right? They will begin to engage in different ways. Mm. So, for example, if you think about interpartner violence and women of color, the fact that they don't call the police oftentimes because the fear is that, and, and, and you know, I'm going to have this as a binary between men and women. Um, the fear is that the man, the man of color, is going to be harmed in these ways that we cannot um, recover from. And so women of color who experience interpartner violence are less likely to call on the state for help. Mm-hmm. If the institutions were to begin to function in a particular way, the data will tell us where when trust is increasing, because we may see increased calls, for example, to the state asking for help. Well, Professor Julia Jordan-Zachary, chair of the Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies Department at Wake Forest University and president of the Association for Ethnic Studies. Professor Jordan-Zachary, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Professor Goldberg, I got to turn back to you here because I, um, I, thus far in the conversation, I have been hearing pretty clear line of thinking that uh, skepticism, healthy skepticism, um, is that backstop, as you were saying, to, um, let's say, exploitation and manipulation that can come with, um, with too much trust. Um, but can that skepticism also be used as a tool to rebuild trust? That's that's a <clears throat> that's a lovely question. Um, I would speculate that the answer is yes. Uh, I think that that um, it, here I pick up again on something that that Professor Jordan Zachary had uh, just said, which is when you're confronting a community or even an individual who doesn't trust you and who doesn't trust you for good reasons. Um, it, it's incumbent upon you or on the institution to earn back that trust. And I think that the first point that needs to be made here is that I think the individual or the institution needs to signal that it recognizes that it it bears the responsibility of earning that trust back. And in this context, I think it's actually helpful for the 
um, the community at large to maintain a kind of skepticism, to continue to put the pressure on the individual or, or the institution. That's the way towards a more trusting relationship after trust has been has been destroyed. So I, I think the answer to your question is yes. Okay. Well, we're getting some comments here online. Um, on Twitter, a listener is saying that people believe Donald Trump and the big lie because they are skeptical of the alternative. People don't want to say... I want to be contrarian. They trust Trump more than the squandered credibility of mainstream institutions. It's a sim- it's a symptom of lack of trust in institutions. Jack, what do you think? Oh, that's interesting. You you had uh, you were nosing up to that a couple of minutes ago. That that thought that there's a kind of radical skepticism toward everything else, and isn't it informed by uh, that cliche? And I've I've used it. We all use it. I've done my own research, <laughs> which 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 of course means I've gone onto Google, I've gone onto the, the web, and I've and and any and I've taken the word of any number of people, but the verifiable source. The New York Times, Washington Post, uh, the non-editorial parts of the Wall Street Journal, Boston Globe. You know, th- those are those are dis- discarded. You know, I think it's to the credit of our institution, NPR, that uh, studies of the Iraq War, as we know, showed that NPR listeners were much less than any other news source to believe the lie about the weapons of mass destruction. Far more even than newspaper readers. And that's to the credit of what we do. And that shows that, you know, media can be a force for uh, working out a trust whose grounds are true. Uh, it can't. Okay, so parts of it, um, Jack, right? Because the yes, world, right. the world that we find ourselves ourselves in um, is one of increasing complexity, um, a massive reduction in transparency in all kinds of institutions. And what's sort of replacing um, that transparency are information silos. We can build a world of information around us that's perfectly reflective of our um, already in inherent beliefs, right? So, Professor Goldberg, if if true healthy skepticism requires keeping an open mind, right, for one's one's own beliefs and um, for the possibility of change in a person or institution, based on new information, is aren't uh, aren't we sort of behind the eight ball here? Because um, it's really what's what's easier to do these days is to keep a closed mind. Yeah, I, I, that that may well be true. I think you you put your finger on one of the real challenges that all of us face. Uh, and by the way, I can't help but just say I agree entirely with Jack. I'm a huge NPR fan and have been my whole life. Uh, I do think NPR has done a marvelous job in with respect to the Iraq War, but but even during the the Trump presidency and calling out the big lie. So I just want to say kudos to NPR, uh, and I agree entirely with Jack. Um, but, but Megna, one of the things that you pointed out that I think is worth um, noting is in our world, even if our world were fully transparent, even if our institutions were fully transparent, we still face the problem that the information that we face today is so much greater in amount than we ever faced before. And we have it at our fingertips, exactly as you pointed out. So it seems to me, and this is a point that I often make to my students at Northwestern, it seems to me that none of us is in a position to judge for ourselves on all matters that we care to have opinions about 
on all matters or on many of the most important matters, we have no choice but to trust others. And this raises the importance of making our decisions about whom to trust all that much more important for us. And and I would I would I would emphasize that um, when we're when we're talking about the, the the need for skepticism and how we avoid a kind of noxious skepticism in our in our beliefs. Okay, but I just I still guess I'm I'm wondering about um, how then to continue to find or seek that that balance between a healthy skepticism um, and uh, and trust because. Uh, just to be clear, some as we mentioned earlier, some folks who believe that they're being skeptics, I mean, is what they're actually doing just flat out disbelief, which is different than from skepticism. Yeah, absolutely, yes, and and it's important. So I guess the the starting point would have to be that all of us need to become educated in being able to assess the quality of our evidence and the quality of our reasons. That's the single most important thing that any one of us can do. Much easier said than done, but that that to my mind is one of the central goals of edu- a proper education. Um, with with that said, I've joked around with some of my friends that um, in order to for all of us to maintain a healthy kind of skepticism, so that we don't ever become dogmatic in our views, we should have a national change your mind day. It's a di- mm-hmm. one day every year when every every one of us pretends for the day that we believe something that we the, the 364 days the other 364 days of the year we vehemently deny. What this does is it uh, it will force us to try to reckon with the the reasons that are on the other side of a debate in ways that we might not otherwise do, in ways that if we got intellectually lazy, we would stop from doing. This is the way I think that we can prevent ourselves from having the kind of the kind of dogmatic belief on the one hand, and on the other, the, the worry that you have, the kind of dogmatic disbelief um, that you're worried about when you say, "Isn't can, can't skepticism give rise to a kind of uh, just flat out disbelief in in the facts?" Huh. Well, Jack, in the last few seconds that we have, I'm going to give you the last word. Would you be on board for a national change your mind day? I, I, I would, and so would John Stuart Mill, who said, Dear Lord, strengthen the arguments of my enemies. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jack Beatty, On Point News Analyst with us from Hanover, New Hampshire. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And Sandy Goldberg, professor of philosophy at Northwestern University uh, and the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, I should say, author of Conventional Pressure and Foundations and Applications of Social Epistemology. Professor Goldberg, it's been great to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Megan. It's wonderful having a conversation with you and with Jack and also with Professor Jordan Zachary. And by the way, Jack is going to be back with us for our final episode in this series where we're going to look at how to regain trust as it recedes between Americans and their institutions. I do have a situation where I desperately want to trust somebody who I'm in a relationship with, but there is an issue with what I think I'm seeing as opposed to what they are saying. I would say very much so that I trust government less, and I trust the media less, and even I trust NPR so much less. That trust could be reestablished with me and much of the public, I think, if the news media as a whole were able to distinguish between science and pseudoscience better than what it seems to be able to do. We're being force-fed or trained how to or who to trust and who not to trust. 
some on-point listeners there. Well, as we heard in episode three, community trust and institutional trust are closely intertwined. So for our final episode, we're going to turn to one of America's foremost political scientists, Robert Putnam. His most famous work is Bowling Alone, the collapse and revival of American community. And right now, Robert Putnam is looking at how America came together before and how it can again. What came first was a kind of a moral revival. People began to focus on their obligations to one another and stop focusing so much on what was in it for me. That's coming up in the final episode of our special series, Essential Trust. What trust is, why we need it, and what happens when it's lost. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.